As we get started, we're going to have a word of prayer. Uh, we want to remember uh, Ray Anderson, who had some surgery this week and still in the hospital down in Denver and uh, possibly facing another surgery. But let's pray for Ray. And it's good to have Ray Lore back with us. We need to pray for Ray Lore as well. And I think probably all of us have a prayer need or answer to prayer. And let's just bow our heads and, and go to prayer today. Heavenly Father, we thank you just for this time together, this time that we can uh, just celebrate and worship and praise You and, and also just share some of our needs. And Lord, right now we just lift up Ray Anderson and, and Gloria and, and the family and, and just pray that You just be with Ray and the surgeries that he's gone through and the healing process. And we just pray that he's able to just make a full and complete recovery, but we leave it in Your hands. We just know that You're the great physician. And Lord, we just also lift up Ray Lord to You and just pray with be with him and some of his health health things that are going on and, and um, we just leave that in your hands as well. And, and Lord, you know each one of our hearts. You know exactly what's going on in our lives. And, and Lord, even as we this morning talk about your grace, I just pray that our hearts are open for what your word has for us and that we can realize just a little bit more of how much you love us. And so Lord, let this message speak to each one of us today. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like I mentioned, we're going to be doing a, a series on grace, and hopefully when you're done with it, we've maybe touched the surface of God's grace because it's it's really huge. It's hard to really understand. So if you have your Bibles and you turn to Luke chapter 11, and or Luke 15, and we're going to start with verse 11. I'm not going to read all of that. We'll be reading it throughout some of the message here. But how many of you remember 1980? Okay. If you didn't don't remember 1980, think of reruns. Okay, but the, there was the movie Superman 2 came out in 1980. Christopher Reeves. Ring any bells? Okay. Superman 2 picked up where Superman 1 ended. Okay, it's all rocket science. That kind of knowledge you can work in the sound booth. But uh, <laughs> anyway, Lois Lane discovers that Superman is really Clark Kent. And they're in love. But there's a small problem because Clark Kent's from Krypton. And in order to start his relationship with Lois Lane, Superman has to sacrifice all of his powers. You guys remember this movie? So Superman, if he wants to live as a mortal, fall in love with Lois Lane and all that, he gets his superpowers removed. He gives it all up. And then he, at the same time, he's unaware that there are three criminals from Krypton who have come to the planet Earth to destroy the planet. Lex Luthor and the gang. Remember this? This is exciting stuff. So Superman is warned that he can never get his powers back. Never, ever, ever. If you give them up, you don't get them back. He'll just become ordinary Clark Kent. Now he realizes more than ever, the world needs Superman. And so the Clark Kent hikes through this raging blizzard and he goes back to Superman's former fortress of solitude 
It's all now in ruins. And he cries out, Father, I have failed you. And all of a sudden, behold, there's a green crystal on the ground that he picks up and he turns back into Superman. He's miraculously regained all of his superpowers. And then you know how the story goes and he destroys all those people. Now if you think about that film, which you're probably going, who cares? The writers of this film put themselves in a kind of a bit of a bind. Because they established the rule that if Superman gives up his superpowers, he can never get them back. But, so he surrenders his superpowers and if they would have stuck to the rule, Superman could not have been the hero in the end. So the writers changed the rule in the middle of the story in order to get Superman off the hook. Now I'm going to use that story as kind of a springboard today because of this series on grace. And if you, if you really want to know what the series could, the title could be, it would be Graceology. That's not really a word, but it would be really cool if it was. Um, it would be the study of the doctrine of grace, graceology. Um, but over the next several weeks, we're going to take a different Bible stories, and we're going to try to understand a little bit more what Jesus did for us and help us realize the grace that is at work, and hopefully we understand it just a little bit more. Now, in one sense... The Old Testament teaches a way of righteousness that we can never achieve. In the book of Micah, if you look at that scripture, in Micah 6, 8 it says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So that's what the Lord requires of us. So that's pretty simple. We're to do justice. That means practice being just and fair, being impartial, never playing favorites. It says we're supposed to love kindness. That means practical kindness. Be kind and compassionate, not just to whom you want to, but be loving to all people. And then it says we must walk humbly before our God. So in simple terms, we need to practice the fact that God is God and we're not. So that's all pretty simple. But not really. Because how do we determine if we measure up to these lofty standards that were set by God? Have we messed it up? For instance, are you always just and fair in every single aspect of your life? Are you always kind and compassionate all the time? Do you practice humility in every aspect of your life? So we're probably sitting here going, well, maybe it's not as simple as it, as it sounds because none of us are at that point. And Paul reminds us that in Romans 3.23 where he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the Old Testament law puts us in a very difficult position it shows us the way to achieve righteousness, 
It warns us of the consequences of what happens if we don't measure up. And the problem is, none of us measure up. So what did God do? In a sense, think of the movie Superman. The writers of the super, they wrote him back in as a superhero. God did that first. We didn't know it. We didn't get it back then. But in the same sense, God says, I'll take care of the ending of the story. God understood that on our own, we can never be good enough. We can never do enough deeds. We can never be a good enough person in order to get into heaven. If we could somehow earn it, it would take away faith. And it would leave us with works of righteousness. And so then the only way for salvation would be to earn it. But that doesn't fly with God because He knows none of us are worthy for that. So Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is probably one of the key verses of this whole series. But it says, For by grace have you been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So to, so to show this just a little bit more, I want to remind you of a story that's in the book of Luke. And it's a very familiar story. It's a story of the prodigal son. And I'm going to recap the story of how it ends. And then we're going to read a little portion of the Scripture. But we call this passage of Scripture out of Luke the story of the prodigal son. And there was a father who had two sons. And the younger son goes to the father and he says, I would like my inheritance now. So the father gives the boy, and they say he probably received at least a third of the inheritance uh, of what the father had. He took all that the father gave him, and he goes on this huge vacation. He goes to some distant land that sounded fun, probably like the Bahamas before the hurricane. He parties. He lives the good life, what he thinks until he has absolutely nothing left of this money. He's out of cash. And there's nowhere where he can go. He can't text his father. He can't email him. There's no Snapchat. There's no Facebook. He's desperate. Nothing. He's basically out in the cold. So then he kind of comes to his senses and he realizes that, you know, At my dad's house, even the servants have food left over. And here I am, a Jewish kid, eating with the pigs. Well, there's a lot of theologically wrong with that. So he works up the courage and he goes home to confess to his father that he was not worthy to be his son. And he says, just hire me. If he could just hire me as a servant, I will be thrilled. I will be excited. So now we go to the story. If you look at your Scripture in Luke chapter 15, Verses 20 through 24, it says, So he got up and he went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick! Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. 
Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now in this story, this father did what no Middle Eastern man would do at that time. He ran after his son. Because a wealthy, older Middle Eastern man, they don't pick up their tunic or their robes and run. That was disgraceful during that culture. That was not dignified. But it says the dad ran out after his son, and it says that literally he fell on, the, on his son. He was so excited. He embraced him. He welcomed him. He gave him a robe, sandals, a family ring. He has this huge barbecue. They began a huge celebration because he said, my son who I thought was dead is, is home. It's time to have a party. He's excited. But you know, the rule in life works differently. We would tend to look at this sometimes and say, you wanted your inheritance and now you lost it all. And now you want me to let you back? The father could have said, don't you realize how badly you've embarrassed us as a family? And think about that. Because maybe you've committed a crime. Maybe you've had dealings with drugs or alcohol or lost your job. You can't keep your mouth shut. We have all these things and we come up with a lot of reasons to say no to someone when they need help. The father in the story changed the rules. Instead of casting his son away, he brought him back and he accepted him as a son again. That's what grace is. God rewrites the story for us so that we receive what we don't deserve. That's grace. Grace means you receive what you don't deserve. The son did not deserve another chance to be the father's son. But the father gladly welcomed him back in the family. Go back to the Superman movie. Superman didn't deserve another chance. He gave up his superpowers. He, in a sense, received what he didn't deserve. And so some people hear this and they say, can this really, can this really be? It sounds too good. Maybe you're thinking of it and say, can God really forgive me? Will God really wipe away my past? Will God really give me a fresh new start, a new life? Is that really possible? Because a lot of times we ask those questions. And then if we go out in the world, the world looks at it and say, what an irresponsible religion that is. Because you can't just offer people forgiveness, grace, and mercy because they'll take advantage of it. And a lot of the world's philosophy is you reap what you sow. I read a lot of different 
articles throughout the week, and there was one a few years ago by a lady named Terry Savage, who was a, a writer from the Chicago Sun-Times. And she talks about how they were driving in an upscale neighborhood of Chicago, and she was with her brother and her brother's fiance. And she said, we always had a rule in our house that whenever we would see a lemonade stand, we would always stop and buy lemonade to support the kids. So he said, we saw this lemonade stand, we stopped, and her brother got out of the car and asked what all they had. And there were three little girls there. And the three girls said, we have regular lemonade, we have raspberry lemonade, and then we also have chocolate bars. So he asked them, how much do you want for them? And they responded, it's all free. He goes, really? How much? How much? No, it's all free. So he says, well, we just want to help you. And the girl said, no, we don't want, we don't want your money. It's all free. So this writer of the Chicago Times is sitting in the car, this man's sister, and she's written other articles in her newspaper that says, never yell at children. But she sticks her head out of the car and she proceeds to explain the laws of economics to these three girls. And when she's satisfied with all that she's explained to them, she just kind of sits back in the car, kind of gloating, saying, okay, now they know. So her brother, after all of this, orders the raspberry lemonade. And he looks at the girls and says, how much do I owe you? And the girls say, it's free. Well, this lady that had just given the talk on economics to these kids starts ranting. America is getting it all wrong when it comes to government and taxes and policy. These children of America, now they got this free lunch. They think everything's free and our country has all these larger problems ahead. Because she couldn't comprehend that someone wanted to give something away for free, no strings attached. She had a struggle with it. Now, any business person or anybody that knows anything about economics would realize that this, girl, this lady is, is correct. You can't make it unless you charge for things. That's economics. The world's a world of economics. It's a simple matter of accounting. And so she has a point. She's kind of cranky about it right now, but she has a point. And the problem is, is that we try to carry this same kind of accounting into our religious life. Because we, there's a lot of people that believe our acceptance with God is determined by scales. And what I mean by that, we have our good deeds on this side of the scale, and we have our bad deeds on this side of the scale. And whichever side the scale tips, that's where we spend eternity. That's not how it works. And I'll be quite truthful with you, it's a really good thing that it doesn't work that way. 
because I don't know who would find eternity with God if that's the way it worked, but I have a sneaking suspicion and I'm not an accountant, but it would be zero. Because on a typical day, how many deeds do we do? Probably quite a few. Are some deeds better than other deeds? Probably. Do we really know if we're on the positive side or the negative side? I don't know. It all leads to the works of righteousness. It leads to this philosophy of trying to earn our salvation. Now, in the end of the story of the prodigal son, the older son comes up and he wonders, what's all the commotion about? What's going on here? And he finds out that his brother, his younger brother is home and there's a huge party and he's not happy about it. Especially when he finds out that his father has welcomed him home as a son again. So the older brother doesn't like the grace that was given to the younger brother. That older brother doesn't agree with the economics either. What we see is the older brother is a legalist. He would do everything that his father told him to do, but he did it out of obligation, not out of love. The older brother refuses to go to this party, even after the father, in a sense, begs him to go. And so I would say the older brother represents what we might call ungrace. Kind of the, you get what you deserve. If you mess up, you deserve to pay the price. The older brother would believe that there are no second chances in this world. And he represents the idea of religion based on the principles of accounting that you should get what you deserve. And the older brother thinks that he has a handle on everything. But you know what? He's wrong. In the book of Isaiah, he reminds us of that truth as he spoke about the suffering Christ. If you look at Isaiah 53.6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God really needs a lesson on economics since in that one statement He says we have all strayed and none of us are righteous. But then, in the same breath, it's as if God says, okay, I've got it. I'm going to send My Son and have your sinfulness laid on Him and He'll suffer for you. That doesn't make sense to us. But that's who God is. God has this amazing, powerful, almost reckless love for each one of us. So in a sense, He's changed the story. He offers us redemption. Remember that Ephesians 2.8? For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. And the truth is, in one way or another, all of us are prodigals. 
At one time or another, we have left our Father and we've wandered away. And it could be the point where some are still wandering. And I guess what I'm saying this morning is we all need to come home. So here's what I want you to remember about grace. Although you're going to hear it for the next many weeks. Many of you think that when you come back to God, or you come to God in the first place, you think that maybe God will have the attitude of the older brother. And you might look at it and say, God's thinking, oh, guess who decided to show up? Or we maybe think that God says, I can't believe you'd show your face around here. Or sometimes we think maybe God's saying, do you realize how much pain you've caused me with the way that you've lived? Or maybe even worse, we might even think that God somehow thinks He's ashamed of us. Those are just lies. What I want you to know is not what the Father says when you come back to Him, but when you come back to God, here's what happens. While you're still a long way off, God sees you. And He is filled with love and compassion. He knows exactly what you've done. He knows exactly where you've been. He knows how bad you've been. And He's still filled with compassion for you. And when He sees you, he runs to you. He grabs you around the neck. He probably almost knocks you over. And as you stand before Him, shocked, He offers you the best robe. He gives you the family ring to wear. He gives you shoes for your feet. And He gives you this huge feast in your honor. Do you deserve it? Nope. But that's what grace is. God has given each one of us what we do not deserve. That's where we're headed in the next few weeks to talk about God's grace. And I guess I hope right now today you have accepted God's grace that He's offered to you today because He's waiting for you. He knows you so well. Don't ever think you've hidden anything from Him. He knows all the stuff. He probably knows some of the stuff that you probably forgot about the stuff. And He says, come to Me. I'm here for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this story of the prodigal son and just the illustration a little bit of Your grace. And Lord, I just pray this morning, even where somebody might be sitting and they've they just need a special touch of Your grace right now. Maybe they feel all alone or they feel that they've done so much that they can't ever be forgiven of. And I just pray right now You will just wrap Your loving arms around them, hold them tight and say, here I am. And Lord, I just pray that all of us here this morning can experience Your grace. It becomes really fresh and new every day. And so, Lord, I thank You for Your Word today, and I just pray that we can live our lives in freedom 
because You have freed us from the power of sin. And so Lord, I thank You for this time together and I just pray as we continue in worship and praise that we can just draw closer to You. And Lord, I just pray that it doesn't end right this morning, but throughout this week, we can just allow our cups to be filled over and over each and every day. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.